All right, everybody. This is uh, Colin O'Donnell. I was the uh, kind of helper or co-teacher or whatever you want to call me for the English 161 Literature of War class, also PWOD 161. Um, I was helping out Dr. Lithgow as um, a student veteran who's been through the class. I went through in spring of 2020, uh, kind of right before things got all crazy, and um, I just really enjoyed the class and you know, Dr. Lithgow uh, was pretty passionate about this, and and now that I'm on this side of the house, uh, I got a little bit of creative license with my final project. So for my final project, I'm actually going to do a podcast. Um, probably would have done this a, a while ago, but I had some technical difficulties, and anybody that knows me can attest to the fact that I'm not good with electronics or anything like that whatsoever. So we're just now getting it figured out, um, and today I have with me a friend um, since just about the entire time I've been here at Carolina, um, his name is Dave, and uh, he was a um, special operator in the United States Army. Um, I'll let him kind of divulge what he wants to divulge, but um, as a fellow student veteran and also as somebody who's had some pretty unique uh, experiences himself, I wanted to kind of get his perspective on what it means to be um, someone who's been to the other side and come back, um, as well as somebody who's now uh, contending with his experiences, but also navigating a totally different life. You know, he's an adult. He's got um, a number of children, a, a litter, some would say, of children. And, um, you know, uh, somebody who's in that position is surrounded by 18-year-olds in college um, and in a totally different culture, which is academia. Um, but I'll let him talk about that. So without further ado, uh, Dave, would you like to give us a little bit of an introduction and a background? Uh, sure. Good afternoon, Colin. Um, so I was in the military uh, for about 15 years. Uh, got out mostly uh, for two reasons. One was uh, it was getting harder and harder to justify being away from the family, especially as things were winding down. And the other part is um, I had a bunch of friends who got out prior to me. Uh, and I think one of the things for a lot of guys who are uh, active duty is you become complacent in the sense that you're comfortable where you're at, no matter how difficult it is. Uh, ironically, it can be kind of uh, scary to try new things. And I think the biggest thing is once somebody else has kind of trailblazed it for you, it's, uh, you can imagine yourself doing something else. And the biggest thing I kept telling myself is I did not want to start a new career in my 40s. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's not what I wanted to do. And also, um, most guys, when they retire at 20 years, they're 20 to 25 years, they're in their 40s, and usually the career opportunities are limited. Um, some guys do go back to school, but I've, the handful that I've known to do it, it tends to be a more difficult path to uh, traverse, I guess. Do you think that um, that 20-year retirement, uh, especially being you know as young as some of these guys are at 40 years old, um, do you think that that's kind of like a barrier, um, maybe mentally, for them to want to go start a new career? Um, do you think that it maybe even hinders them a little bit? Um, I would say so. 
there are a variety of factors that, I mean, this is what I was told, so I'm not going to say that this is factually accurate, but this is what I was told when I first joined, is that the back in the day, the Army figured normal enlistment was two to three years. And then uh, the Army would, you know, if you didn't re-enlist, they'd, you know, thank you, no hard feelings, whatever. But they assumed at the time, this was, I think, the model for the 80s and 90s, that if you re-enlisted, you were basically a lifer. And so, because um, your second enlistment would usually be for a significant amount of time, usually like five or six years. And by the time three plus five, you're at eight, you're about halfway to retirement. And I do know, and I think this is from the 70s, I shouldn't say no, this is what I've heard is part of the model for retirement is that most people, once they retire from the Army, only live about three or four years. So the it was not a great burden on the, the government to provide a pension, which is every month they get, a, you know, if you do 20 years, you get 50% of your pay each month. And so that was kind of the old thinking. And so um, I think what a lot of people have found is that nowadays the – uh, retirement uh, benefit or pension uh, when you're 40 and if you plan to live to you know 60 70 80 90 years old is it really doesn't keep up with that so oh. well, yeah a lot of guys looked at that and said is it worth it and I know uh, one path hopefully I'm not boring you all one path some guys would take and I've had several guys tell me this is if guys get out at 10 years or 15 years they are giving up their pension which when you retire the very next day you draw so you're 40 years old and retired and you're getting a it's not a bad paycheck but it's not it doesn't keep up with inflation um or really any other economic factor that rises you know the cost of living over time um just a little caveat my my uh, uncle that i talked about in the past retired from the army and they haven't um they haven't adjusted his pension basically since he got out. So it hasn't kept up with inflation. Uh, he hasn't gotten an increase in pay. And yeah, so uh, I can definitely see the economic downsides. And I think it's hilarious that you use the word burden, um, not because it's not accurate, because I mean, economically I, I can see that, but um, mostly because I, I do have this feeling that sometimes the government does look at veterans and think of them as a burden. So yeah. And uh you use fancy words like dovetail or go off on a tangent a little bit on that. I'll keep it short. But um, uh, so I know some guys, if you, it, you're uh, when you're in the military, it's considered federal service. So there's a lot of guys who will get out at 10 to 15 years and transition to another federal job. And you have to buy it back. Uh, last time I looked, it was like $1,500 a year, which is not insubstantial. But if you look at you do 10 years and there's a certain they just take it i think from your salary so you get a smaller salary but if you look at the payout for a, somebody who did 30 years federal service and retires and i i, I forget when it, i couldn't tell you when you start able to draw is the difference is significant and the time up until you can draw most people work so you're not trying to uh, recreate yourself or start another career Sure, you're just moving to um, a different agency or, or whatever it might be that's going to employ you to do, you know, semi-similar skills, depending on what you did. Um, I'm kind of looking at that right now. You know, I just got that job with the VA. 
Um, and then even when I go to PA school, once I get out, I'll probably try to work at a VA if at all possible. Um, I'd like to buy my own time back and then continue with that. Um, and then obviously, you know, um, I'm a bit of a nerd about the veteran thing. So, um, for anybody that's listening, you know, when I got out, uh, I didn't have any friends up here or anything like that. I didn't have like a wife or kids or anything. So, um, and, you know, and, and I was, uh, at the time in a motorcycle community, um, and I had a big long beard and, you know, I was older than my peers. So I didn't exactly fit into, uh, you know, the, the regular college role. And with that, I went to the Veterans Center for an orientation that I thought was mandatory. That apparently wasn't. Um, but there I met people and they became my first friends in college. And then um, they became really my only friends in college because uh, halfway through my college career, we went online, essentially. Um, but even then, I didn't make that many uh, civilian friends. And I think a lot of it is just because, you know, I, I felt you know comfortable in the community. I shared a language with people. Um and some experiences and we're all a little bit older um so it, it kind of made things easy for me so I, I was kind of a nerd about it um i worked at the carolina veterans resource center uh, pretty much the entire time i've been here and um i'm also uh, the outgoing president of the carolina veterans organization which is a chapter of the student veterans of america on campus um, i've been a member of that organization since i've been here as well or just about since i've been here and, um, you know, so if I can work at the VA and work with crusty old poop in your pants veterans, I uh, probably will. What do you think about that? What are you going to do? Are you going to maybe transition to federal or, um, tell people what you're, what you're kind of studying right now? I am currently, uh, double majoring. I'm finishing it up. I'm, I'll be done this semester as well. Um, but, uh, I am a geology and political science major for no particular reason besides I find it interesting. Um, so for political science, I don't think that there's a whole lot of federal jobs. There's probably like some data science stuff. And then for geology, it's a mixed bag. However, uh, they're very difficult jobs to get because there's not a whole lot of them, one, and you spend a lot of time outdoors, and that's what a lot of people who go down that major like to do, so it's competitive. Yeah, so that's a good introduction. Um, let's take it kind of way back here. Um, where are you from, and you know when did you join the army, and why? So that is, I'll tell you the. Uh, um, we'll talk about that. Just that gathering my thoughts. So, uh, I'm from uh, northern Minnesota, uh, originally and currently. Um, so the reason I like it up there is because I like the cold, and most people don't, and I completely understand that. So no judgment, but um, plus it's familiar, I guess. Uh, one of the big draws for going back, now that we're on a tangent, which hopefully Colin will forgive me, is I really enjoy uh, bird hunting, and it is possibly one of the premier spots in the world to do. That's not making it up. Uh, so actually you can, you can read about it in places if you want to nerd out on that stuff, which I guarantee nobody does, but I do, but, um, and it's all public land, so you don't, you're not paying to do it. I got some big deer up there too, though, so. 
Yeah, nobody, no serious hunters deer hunt up there unless you bow hunt. That's a whole other story. Well, you just got to cross the border, and there's plenty of uh, cr- plenty of uh, big deer hunters there. So, I uh, this is one of the times I'll agree with Colin in Wisconsin. I think I'm talking about rifle deer hunting, which yeah. is, which is y'all aren't aware. In Minnesota, rifle deer hunting, there are big deer, but it's usually when all the uh, deer season's usually about rifle season's two weeks long, and everybody else literally stops hunting because it's a bunch of drunks in trees shooting at anything that moves. I can attest to that as a Wisconsinite. Um, that That's literally us. In fact, half the incoming in Duluth, Minnesota is probably from Superior on uh, opening morning, so... Yeah, I can I can believe that. So yeah, uh, uh, nobody hunts during that time, and I think the duck hunters there are irritated about it because I think duck season bleeds into that. Yeah, it certainly does, and it, it does down here as well in North Carolina. Um, but I don't even pay attention to duck season until after deer is over, usually. Um, but that's that's my own thing. That's my own. Uh, but you know, down here it's it's incredible. Um, archery season starts in September. And then goes all the way to um, usually mid October. Uh, nope, never mind. It goes all the way to well, it goes all the way to January through to January first usually. Um, but then November first, right around there, usually is where black powder picks up. And then from the first to the fifteenth, it's all black powder. You can still archery hunt, obviously. And then after that, from November fifteenth to January first, you can rifle deer which if you did that up in wisconsin or minnesota there would be no deer so um i always find that kind of interesting um and also the deer down here pretty much everything that i've taken out of the woods i could carry out on my shoulder so um that's that's um a bit disappointing but i'll take my six tags and uh my four month long deer season and and i won't cry about it because right after that i get about um a month and a half or or uh, so of a uh, duck hunting, so not too bad. Um, all right, so you've told us a little bit about Minnesota. Um, now, kind of tell us a little bit about your experience. So you grew up there, um, and that obviously led to a pretty serious decision. I assume you were 20 at the time when you joined the army, right? So uh, I, I'll tell that story, and then sure. we can feel free to interrupt if it gets long and boring. Go on. Um, so. I'll just start with, okay, I'll tell a funny story first that planted the seed, and then I will go into <laughs> what actually happened, which is almost unrelated. But um, so I was in high school when uh, 9-11 happened, which obviously I couldn't join the military then, even if I wanted to, which at the time, um, I did not really. Um, I did apply to West Point, did not get in. Uh, was not medically fit enough, ironically, which was actually uh, incorrect, but uh, paperwork can get you sometimes, I think. But anyways, so... <laughs> well, you can become the president if you've had flat feet, so... Uh, yeah, but uh, mine, which is... My whole life's just full of sad stories, and one of the sad stories is... Uh, so, I don't have the best eyes in the world, and in order, this is what happened. I'll just tell you real quick, and you can cut this out. If it's no, just, you guys just rambling. But uh, anyways, so as a cool high school kid, I did not want to wear glasses. So, but you have to get your eyes tested with glasses on. 
So when I went to get my eyes tested, I needed a new pair of glasses. They did not come any time. And so uh, I had to have uncorrected eyes tested, which did not meet the minimum. However, if my glasses would have arrived in time, they would have been corrected. Mm-hmm. And I would have been eligible. So yeah. isn't that weird? Yeah, it's the little things. But then you got to think about, you know, like that butterfly effect. You know, how did that completely change your, your course? Yeah, and I, that, that's assuming that if that was the one obstacle, which I will say I was not a uh, perfect student. I was, I was pretty decent, but um, anyways, so anyway, so uh, but that would be the only interest I ever showed in the military prior to actually joining. So uh, anyways, uh, I'll go back to the 9-11 thing. So my crazy Vietnam veteran dad, and he is, I would say, most by most people's standards, fairly crazy. You wouldn't know it if you talked to him either until... Uh, he feels comfortable enough to actually talk to you, and then you realize he's got a different view of the world than probably a lot of people. Mm-hmm. He was a uh, he was a pilot in Vietnam, so um, one of the weird things he would always tell me, and as a kid, you don't understand it, but he'd say like uh, he said, after I turned twenty five, each day after that's just gravy. His <laughs> life expectancy was not very high, and he um, uh, he got drafted and deferred for college, and then. He, one of his points of bitterness, which again, feel free to uh, do with this what you will. But anyways, one of his points of bitterness was that all of the doctor's sons got deferred to go to medical school. He applied to grad school for chemistry and did not get deferred. So then he had to serve. So he's still, still kind of, I would still say he holds that as a chip on his shoulder that apparently the world needs doctors, but not uh, people doing r- real sciences, he'd say. <laughs> But uh, anyways, so I, I bring that up because so after 9-11 happened, my dad likes to take walks at night and he's got dogs. So he'll walk in the neighborhood and my buddy's friend was out and apparently they were chatting and he came back and told me the story. I can only imagine the stuff that he hasn't told me at the time. He told me the story, he came back, he's like, well, I just told your buddy, his dad, that he needs to prepare his son for war because that's what's about to happen. Because in my dad's frame of reference, we were all about to get drafted and invade Afghanistan with, I don't know, how many million people. But in his mind, that's what was about to start. And so he was warning the neighborhood that they need to apparently prepare their children for, or their sons. Because he's, that's his uh, way of thinking. Right. But uh, yeah, so then my friend told me that my dad was really weird after that. And I was like, yeah, I, I know. More. So, anyways, so fast forward to uh, the college years or college year. I was living in my parents' basement, uh, a broke college kid. I was also working a 30, 35 to 40 hour job so I could pay for college. And I was taking, I think, like 16 or 18 credits, something stupid. But it was so I could finish college as fast as possible and get out of the basement because uh, that's all I could afford. And my parents helped me out, so I don't want to sound ungrateful. I mean, I was lucky I had a, one, a place to stay, but two, um, they paid for summer college, too. And that's the only way I could have gone. But anyways, so I was pretty uh, not happy with living in a basement. And I decided that, uh, well, I'll just go down to the Army Recruiter and see what's up. I also probably read too many books about war and thought it and probably had an idealistic view of it. And uh, so I was in the recruiter's office in January just talking about stuff, and he 
was like, ah, here's what's available. So anyways, uh, he said to me, he's like, ah, so if you plan on having a career in the army, um, what do you think you'd do? Cause I walked in, I just walked in and said, I want to do infantry. I want to go to Iraq, like just straight up. And he's like, what about airborne? I said, I don't know what that is, but I just want to be infantry. Cause I didn't know much. And, uh, he's like, well, you want a career? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Never really thought about it to be honest. But, uh, he, he's like, well, there's this thing called, uh, special forces. You ever heard of that? And I was like, yeah, my dad told me stories about it all the time, which he did. Cause he actually was, uh, direct support for them. So I heard a lot of stories about that stuff. And I was just like, yeah, I mean, maybe, sure. And then uh, he was like, well, we got this great contract available for people who score high enough and you get $18,000 signing bonus. And I was like, and I was like, well, I don't know if I want to do that. He's like, and if you fail out, you get your dream, you'll be infantry. I was like, well, all right. Which, which, by the way, not to interrupt you, but they don't do that anymore. So now, like, they're just, like, needs of the Army. So that was uh, that was scary, I think, for a lot of the 18 x-rays that I had known. Um, because they were like, yeah, now you might just go be, like, a Cav Scout, which would pretty much be an infantry helpful's worst nightmare. So, <laughs> Well, uh, you know what? I can tell you the genesis of that, which is funny. Sure. So they were having too many guys fail, and they were hanging out. And so they started to reclass them, as they say so that they could keep them in the system because uh, SF guys are not are, uh, very cunning people and they realized if we can hang on to these guys and we can fill our support stuff that was bare and so that kind of started it. Oh wow, yeah, that would suck. I mean, especially if you kind of like went in to be like, you know, the shit and then you ended up being like a laundry specialist or something, that would not be great, but. Um, yeah, I could, you know, I could see that. Um, so then you're talking to the recruiter. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, think about it or whatever. I was like, all right. So at the time though, I was also a geology major. So apparently I things don't, don't change. Yeah. I don't like change. Uh, and I applied for a grant to go, uh, dig up dino bones in Montana. That's what I told people. It was probably, I don't think my uh, professor would have appreciated that, but that's what I told people. Cause it sounded a lot cooler than stare at sand and, uh, take a brush and you know brush it off and hopefully you find something is this a rock <laughs> yeah pretty much so anyways so i applied for that and i just set a deadline for myself it's like if i haven't heard back it was because i'm supposed to hear back like early april whether i got it or not and i just assumed they uh if they if you got it they'd let you know right away and if you didn't get it like maybe you weren't a priority to, to know so I think it was like April 7th, completely making up that date, but I want to say it was early. And so that day came and passed. And I was like, if I don't hear within, I think it was like 10 days or whatever, like that's it. So I um, went down to the recruiter after 10 days fasting or anything. Hold on. All right, folks, we're back. Sorry about that. Um, apparently, dogs don't understand the sanctity of podcasts. Um, and I had somebody come to my door, and they were doing dog things. So um, went and got that, you know, some guy trying to sell me some some solar panels. I'm sure it's a pyramid scheme. But, um, you know, anyways, so getting back to things now, um, Dave's going to just kind of pick up where he left off, which was, I believe, 
So, no kidding, there I was. <laughs> um, which, fish stories. Yeah. Well, you hear a lot of those. Especially, so here's another tangent. Especially being a young guy, and I was surrounded by uh, crusty, angry uh, guys. Um, I'd probably use other words but uh, to describe them. But anyways, uh, the young guys who learned how to hear the stories were the ones that were easily... I won't say accepted, didn't get messed with it as much as the ones that uh, were, I would call it, disrespectful to other guys' experiences. And ironically, I learned that from my dad, because he was definitely a, when the adults are talking, uh, go away or sit down and listen. So anyways, no kidding, there I was in uh, my parents' basement, contemplating life, and I decided, I, I gave myself a deadline. I was like, I think it was like, um, cause I, I was talking to a recruiter at the time too. I was like, there's still infantry slots open. I was like, it's, it's 2005. There's always infantry slots open <laughs> there that, um, I don't know if you, if you all are aware of that audience, but that was probably the peak of the war in Iraq and probably one of the darkest moments of the war. And I think I, I'm completely making this up, but I would say that there's I, I think that I'm undershooting things, but there's probably ten people dying a week. Yeah. Well, was that um was that right around the time of Fallujah one? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because Fallujah two was later on during the surge, right, or something like that. Yeah, this is prior to the surge. Mm-hmm. I think this is when the 101st went in, and oh, yeah, uh, things didn't go well for them. Uh, the reason I laugh, it, it, I don't mean to laugh, because it's not. This is. Are you talking about Blackhearts? I have no idea what that is. I I had friends who were in the 101st who told mm-hmm. me the story of the reason they went into Fallujah and did their air assault in there, and um, it didn't go well. And I guess I, it's not. I don't. I apologize for laughing. I'm insensitive, but the reason that it's funny is the wrong word. But uh, it was definitely just a culmination of bad events yeah. that happens. Yeah. Yeah, and and I'm sure you know someone with your kind of experience has probably seen a few of those or or picked up stories from people who have who have experienced enough of those. Yeah, I mean you get a lot of that. And the other thing is, is um, I guess when you're when you're having it happen to you, uh, you can laugh at other people when they describe how it happens to them. I guess that's that's probably why I laugh a little bit. It's probably a uh, inappropriate tick that I have as a veteran, but it's one of the things that I used to tell people or still do is I'm only happy when I'm miserable. And it's because, um, certain very odd people, um, uh, kind of when you're facing stuff that is not great is either you can kind of bury yourself down and just close your eyes and hope the world goes away. Or you can just kind of start laughing at yourself for being an idiot, for being in that situation. So I, I go for the latter. I can um, think of a time where any reasonable person would not be out, we'll call it the middle of nowhere, USA, and getting rained on. Most people would uh, protect themselves from cold weather and rain. But since we were doing a uh, an exercise and treating it as if it was real, because it's what you do, we sat there and shivered for hours, and all of us just started laughing at each other because we knew at any time we could get warm <laughs> and not be miserable. But that, but we're not very bright, so we decided to 
stick to the uh, stick to the rules. Well, I think that there's also a lot to be said for that kind of like forcing yourself to endure adversity type deal. Um, you know, that embrace the suck or whatever platitude you want to apply to it. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said for that because I've noticed that since I've been out or even before that, when I was kind of in a cushier spot in my life, um, once you stop forcing yourself to do hard things, then everything uh, intensifies in how hard it becomes, right? So once you stop forcing yourself to do the shitty, shitty ruck marches in the wet weather, um, then, you know, other things like, oh man, I got to walk to the store now, you know, it starts to intensify in my eyes at least. Um, and getting back into the habit of doing hard things, uh, especially when there's like no particular reason to do hard things other than for the fact of doing hard things. Uh, I think it, it becomes even, even more difficult to get back into that. So, so I will not disagree with you there, but I will say one of the things that fed that, or at least for which I'm sure I will talk too long about some of the stuff because it's just I think it's funny stuff some people might not but a lot of the reason we did a lot of stuff is because you'd always be looking because this was bred into us which I can go and do but you'd look at your buddy and be like well if he's not quitting I'm not quitting like whoever quits first then we can all quit but I'm not gonna be the first guy and then what was eventually why well, I say bred into me because I had a very interesting period of time to go through the training is once somebody quit it would always be we would always laugh and be like, see, I'm better than that guy. And so, like, no matter how many people quit, it was never, all right, we're good. It was always, it just fed into, like, yeah, well. Anyways, it's a very weird, I'll go, I can go to that later if you're interested, but it was a very weird thing. So that was, so by the time you got to where you were going, everybody was that way. Yeah. Yeah. And probably had been that way for the last five miles. So Yeah. Yeah. So. All right, so that's a little bit about you know how you got to to so pick your job. You want me and, to finish the story? Yeah, absolutely. You okay. were you were dusting off, um, or so in so your no dreams kidding. you were dusting off dinosaur bones. Yeah, so. no kidding. There I was. Um, anyway, so I gave myself the deadline, um, and it passed. So and I'd been t like I said I'd been talking to the recruiter, sunk down there, was like, hey, uh, guess I need a job for the summer. Come on in, and uh, so he he. Uh, uh, got me an appointment for MAPS, which is where you join the military to make sure that I was physically capable of doing it. So I went to that, got back, and I want to say the next Monday, my professor comes and he's like, hey, uh, congratulations on getting the grant. You and uh, it was a, I don't remember her name, but we were the two that got it. And I was like, oh, because I'd already committed at that time. I was like, oh. So anyways, I had to go into his office and tell him some story about how I was going to work for my aunt over the summer to do some uh, marketing stuff because I did not want to admit to him at the time that... Who, the recruiter? No. Or the guy that gave me the scholarship? The professor, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah that uh, I was like, oh, I wish you would have told me earlier I already committed to do this with my aunt, marketing and summer. Because I didn't want to admit to him. I was like, hey, I'm dropping out of college to go join the military to go to Iraq. Especially at that time, probably realistically any time, why public opinion of that war was just so high it was it really especially was. in academia yeah so i didn't want to admit that so i was like anyways i met that story dropped out of college and 
there I was going from 40 degree weather to 96 degree weather and 100% humidity in the beautiful swamp in southern Georgia. <laughs> so there you were. Yeah. So then um, went through basic training, uh, then went through infantry, then they made me jump out of airplanes, and then I went through the... Uh, um, training for SF and next thing you know uh, I made it all the way through sure do you want to kind of keep this at um, high level stuff no I, I mean I can talk about it but you're talking about three years so it can get long yeah I mean um, so what was your what was your first job in SF what was the training that you went through for that one uh, I was medic for first time through which is a it's over a year program. Yeah, I've always heard close to close to two, so I'm sure you can. I, I think with with the pipeline included. Oh no, with the pipeline included, especially at the time, it was about three years. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, because I know that what um, the MOS school itself is like over four months, and then plus um, plus Sockham, which is like nine months. And so it was different. That a lot a lot has a lot has changed but uh it wasn't um it was it was uh it was considered the same thing and it was over a year oh wow okay so yeah well yeah because they started to set uh standardize Sockham across special operations that's that's uh neither here nor there and I've, I've heard that they've waffled on that quite a few times since then too so all right so what uh what group did you end up going through or, or do you want to keep that one okay yeah let's keep that one out um, but anyway, so you get to your group. Um, tell me what it's like for a new guy in group. Okay, so no kidding, there it was. But uh, I'll, that's the last time I'll use that. But anyway, so uh, I I signed in, and this time you gotta you gotta think, and I'll use the term because I'm not uh, I use use it with a term of endearment. But we were pretty brainwashed at that time. Uh, I mean, you uh, and I mean that in a good way, but you definitely had a certain attitude. Everybody wanted to go to war because some of us spent three years training for it. And you don't know what that means. I'm not going to say, I'm not trying to uh, idealize it or whatever. I don't know if I well, pronounced it's, it right. It's just the reality of it, right? You were you had a goal and you, you know, went through a ton to get to the end of that, you know, to the end of that race or, or I should say to the beginning of a new race. Um, and yeah, I think that, you're not wrong in saying that because I know a lot of veterans, you know, to include myself to a certain point, um, that never really like went to combat combat or never even deployed some of them. And I think that weighs heavily on a lot of veterans that, especially if they were like airborne infantry or Marine infantry or something like that. And they expected a little bit more. Um, even though I'm sure that, uh, most of us are mature enough to go, I'm glad that I didn't see my buddies die and, you know, maybe have to do some morally apprehensible things. But um, at the same time, I, I do notice this strange uh, phenomenon in veterans who were in the service, in a service where they could have or maybe thought they should have seen more or done more and then didn't. So would you... Uh would you call it like a guilt maybe 
I don't know if it's a guilt. I think it's a um, deterioration of their identity. So I think that uh, when they were, you know, going through their training, even even before, you know, when they were in like the DEP, you know, delayed entry program, and they told all their buddies, like, I'm going to go be a Marine, or I'm going to be airborne infantry, or I'm going to be SF or something like that. And they go into the military, and then they do, you know, however long of training, and then they go to their unit, and they're busting ass, and every, like, six months, every unit in the military is always like, hey, we're going to, you know, get called up for deployment. And, you know, sometimes that never happens, right? Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, sometimes it gets switched, and you go to Kuwait, which is not a real deployment. Um, and, or or sometimes you're in one of the, the naval uh, services or, or Marines uh, where, you know, you call the deployment riding on a boat for six months. Um but I'm talking about like like combat deployments to combat zones, um, and I think that to a certain extent, a lot of you know former military members built an identity around that um, possibility or what they believe to be almost an inevitability. You know, especially younger on in their careers, um, and, and especially if you were in during a time that was like you know stuff was still going on. So I think that afterwards, when they get out, it's kind of a deterioration of that. And then constantly on top of that, too, because, uh, you know, civilians don't really understand the military or how it works. And they shouldn't, you know, to a certain extent, they shouldn't know. Um, but because of that, they go, oh, you know, like, what did you do? You know, and stuff like that. And they kind of have this built-in expectation of what a veteran is. And then there's always this awkward thing where um, I know like a lot of veterans almost feel like they have to be like, well, I didn't go to combat. You know, I didn't really see anything. I didn't, you know, I didn't shoot people. I didn't do anything like that. And it's kind of, it's an interesting phenomenon to me because it's this, it's almost like they feel like they have to do something like that. And it's, it's this deterioration of identity to a certain extent. Um, that I think has some kind of psychological mark, whether it's like a big bad one or whatever. But um, I do think that, you know, some people carry that with them. Do you think uh, part of that is, uh, so, I mean, I can speak for myself, obviously, but uh, I, when I, when I signed up, it was the, um, it wasn't the invasion time. So I'm not going to, like it was because uh, you had a lot of people sign up then and i'm not gonna that was definitely the unknown but i guess it was more known uh when i did but it was also things weren't good but talking to other guys later on uh do you think that part of it is it's kind of like a big risk you're kind of leaping into the unknown and you're expecting some danger and then it turns out you're the guy who gets like stuck on a boat which there's nothing like it hap it happens. People get stuck on boats because you need guys on boats ready for the next thing. So I'm not, I'm not saying that, but it's just part of thing. It's just part of how it goes. It's just part of when you, you. I think like when guys, especially when you build it up, is and especially I'll, I'll blame I'll blame books, but uh, uh just reading about all all these crazy adventures that people are on, and then you, you takes a certain amount of courage to build yourself up to say I'm going to take the plunge and go on the adventure, and then it turns out that the adventure isn't what you thought it is. Right. Or, or, you know, even then, like, not 
so terribly much when I was in, but I know a lot of veterans who were in, you know, the previous four years before I was old enough to go, um, which I joined in 2013 for anybody who's listening. And at that point, things had, you know, changed uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Not saying people didn't die. Uh, there were a lot of people who made the ultimate sacrifice after that point, um, but not nearly as much or as intensely as what was happening previously to that, um, and I'm thinking 2012 and prior. Um, and it, it was funny, when I got to my unit, they had just gotten back from Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, I was in the 173rd, and it was one of the most highly deployed conventional units in the military. And so, you know, the expectation was like, oh, I'm going. You know, oh, I'm going. And we heard it all the time. We were, oh, you're going to Syria. Oh, you're going to this and that. And, um, you know, we did jumps. Like, they would say, hey, pack your shit. We're leaving now. And we would pack our shit thinking that we're going somewhere. And everyone's like, I bet it's Syria. I bet it's Syria. And then we'd get in the, you know, the C-130. And they, you know, or, I mean, like, obviously, like, okay, so we're going to we're gonna go. Or we're going to go jump in somewhere and do a show of force. But then, like or before, I should say, before we actually end up, like, getting out there, like, here's your BFAs, you know, and, like, you know, you're not getting any ammo, and so, like, oh, all right, we're doing a training jump, so then we'd jump into, like, Romania and be there for, like, three weeks, you know, um, so for anybody who's listening, a BFA is a blank firing adapter, you're only going to use it in training, um, because you're shooting blank rounds that don't actually have a projectile, um, and it's just for simulation, but, um, yeah, we, you know, I heard that a lot, um, and there was, I just, I have seen a lot in my generation specifically, or my sub generation, I should say, of veterans, um, where a lot of people, you know, went to, to go do the hard thing and they trained to do the hard thing and they professed the hard thing and then they never do it. And then i see a lot of veterans who feel this need to constantly explain themselves, um, or, or kind of, um, Justify kind their of experience, sub, right? Or or subordinate themselves to what they would deem real combat veterans. You know what I mean? Um, even though we know a lot of people who have seen combat that have never really probably done combat. Well, I, uh, I guess part of what I'm thinking is um, part of the problem, or problems, not the best word to use, but I was part of the genesis of that is that, and I'm thinking about my one of my own experience is I never understood how unpopular Vietnam really was. And then you had the Gulf war, the hundred hour war. Um, and like, I remember when that happened um, because my dad, there's a chance he could go over cause he was an old, he, he didn't want to quit flying. So he was in the guard forever, way too long. But anyways, uh, he could have gone over and then it ended in a hundred, hundred hours. I remember my sister showed me on a globe. I was probably, quite young you can probably do the math in your head yep i but was just a i was just a twinkle in my dad's eye i was not i was a troublemaker i was probably what was it i was six years old seven years old about then i remember my older sister she showed me on a globe with this country called iraq like it just might as well have pointed to the ussr which was still on the globe at the time because you know that had just crumbled i think yeah yeah like i remember when the berlin well especially if it was an older globe so you know, it's not like you updated your globe every year. Could have been one from that year, I think. Sure. But uh, anyways, so you had a hundred years' war. So there wasn't a whole lot. Not that that wasn't 
I mean, people died in that war, and um, there was a lot of good stuff done in the war. But I don't think it brought a lot of the Vietnam War stories to the forefront, like uh, Iraq especially did at the time. So I can see, because I'm just thinking of like all the um, all the books that became popular. I'll call it in the military community at the time, active duty. Like, oh, you got to read this book. You got to read this book. And a lot of that stuff started to really come out probably like 2004, 2005. And then... Um, just kind of got pat you know and then it's like oh you got to check this out you got to read this and then i have i would be completely wrong about saying when i know when books came out when it had to do with uh iraq and afghanistan but i know by 2010 a lot of them were out that were talking about the invasion and stuff right well and especially right at the end of 2010 um is like closing up the surge right so the surge was, I think, popularly uh, believed to be from mid to late 2008 to past somewhere in 2009, right? No? For in Iraq? Yeah, because it was, it was after Obama took office. Yeah, it was. Um, no, no. Yes, it was. So you had because two. he was the one that ordered the surge. You had two. You right? had. You right. had there's I, two. Why would I tell you? You should tell me. So Sorry. you had two. You had the one that Bush did. He was mm-hmm. pushing real hard. And okay. That ended 2008, and then there was another, I wouldn't call it a surge, but it was kind of called that, but it wasn't like the one in 2006, 2007, it was like 2010, 11, and it, it, I'd call it, I think they even call it at the time maybe like a mini surge, where they basically pushed in a lot of, pushed in an additional whatever, you can look it up, it's public record, it's not a secret or anything, yeah. I just don't know what it is, and then they immediately withdrew them, and then it switched over from... OIF, which is Operation Iraqi Freedom, to OND, which is Operation New Dawn. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was like six months to a year, and then it switched over to uh, just a regular old mission yeah. that they have all over the globe for yeah. stuff. Yeah, was, I, I can't remember Resolute Support or something like that. Although we... Yeah. Nope, that you're thinking of... Uh, no, Resolute Support was in Europe. Never, okay. <laughs> never mind. Yeah. Uh, oh, I was thinking of Operation Inherent Resolve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that not it? No, that's Syria. That's what they called it. Oh, gotcha. When they were doing... Yeah, because I, I went to... When I went to Afghanistan, um, which for anyone listening, no, I'm I'm not like a, a combat guy or a war hero or anything. We, uh, we slept in hard buildings and I ate four times a day. And we went out and we did missions, but it was, um, you know, we were either always just to the left or just to the right of the bang, and uh, I had a pretty pretty decent deployment, so can't complain. But um, just to give you guys a little perspective of where I'm coming from, so I'm someone who has deployed, and um, you know got that hazard duty pay, right? And um, and um, you know maybe even expected um, something out of that, but then um, it just didn't really come to fruition. Uh, for you know, fortune and misfortune, depending on what you want to look at, and um, you know that has you know, had a certain element of defining me. And it's always interesting to get to talk to people who never went to Iraq and Afghanistan, but then also people who went to Iraq and Afghanistan. Obviously, like everybody wants to talk to the war hero, right? So, um, and and some people, and just just be careful out there because there's a lot of people that that claim that they were. Um, no shit, there I was. No, and they'll have the big fish story, and um, it's it's probably a lot less than 
than uh, what's uh, portrayed. But um, there are some people who really did walk the walk. And, um, you know, this is why this is an important moment uh, here in my college career because I get to kind of uh, memorialize or, or maybe that's not the right word, but I get to record this for uh, posterity, for for to be in the in the the mind of, of public record um, in the sense that it's a story that's that's worth being told and it's not a story that's you know of course it's it's unique to Dave himself but it's not a story that's entirely unique you know there was a, a whole generation of people that you know underwent something like this but the only reason I brought that up is because um, for anybody who's listening that doesn't know uh, you know anybody or for just about any war um, after World War II, it's a small fraction of the actual military and veterans who have actually, you know, deployed, and then an even smaller fraction that has seen combat, and an even smaller fraction who has participated in combat. Uh, and by that, I mean returned fire accurately and maneuvered on the enemy. So, um, that being said, we'll move on with the uh with the conversation you remember where we were at here before i interjected yeah you asked what is it like to show up as the new guy yeah what is it like to show up as the new guy especially as someone who was in um a group um and by that i mean sf group so when i showed up i, I mean it's a funny story actually but as my entire life is one big joke but uh i showed up um couldn't find, showed up, did all the in-processing stuff that everybody does, which was amazing. It was a lot of fun, a lot of good stuff. But uh, anyways, they cut my orders, and I couldn't find where I was going, which is an embarrassment, by the way, just in general, because you're always supposed to know where you're at and where you're going, and I did not. Well, what are the rules? I'm not going to go over those. Oh, okay. You well, can feel I'll, free I'll do, to. I'll do it quick. It's just it's a small, stupid joke that a lot of people in the military. Um, so there's only a few rules in the military. Um, one is don't get lost. Two is always look cool. And three is if you do get lost, make sure you look cool. So we had a different order, but the same thing. Okay. Fair enough. So go ahead. But uh, anyways, the buildings were not properly labeled. <laughs> That's the short of it. So I went back. Plus, um, when people are talking to me, I'm horrible with names. Like, you can tell me your name. Mm -hmm. And if you move on to the next thing that's something interesting, yeah. it's already gone. Yeah, already gone. So the name of streets. Uh, uh, anyways, I found, anyways <laughs> I was reading where I was supposed to go when they gave it to me, mm -hmm. and I was very disappointed. So I was going someplace that uh, uh, was on the down cycle, so they weren't. They weren't going to be doing much. So, Silly Dave was a little heartbroken, um, which now looking back at that, that's because not very smart. But uh, anyways, so that's all I could see, and I was not paying attention to um, names of streets. And so they, I know they told me because uh, when I finally walked out to my car, and I was like, all right, now where do I need to go? And so I looked. It's also on orders are cut have the address on there. And I was like, all right, I, I can figure this out course it's the address of the headquarters which is not helpful well dave why didn't you just pull it up in google maps on your smartphone uh the iphone was not invented at the time <laughs> my flip phone was not the greatest for the internet either 
And also, I don't think maps existed. We had a uh, map quest though. That was pretty cool. Yeah, you could have map quested it. I suppose yeah. if you had time to go stop somewhere and print it off and yeah. get a map and yeah, yeah, which would have meant a drive, yeah. which I didn't want to show up late. Never be late. That's the yeah. other thing. So anyway, so I drove around because I was like, I'll just look for the name of the unit. Everything around here has got the unit name on it, and I know the general area that it should be in. Drove around for 20 minutes, couldn't find it. So I walked back to the headquarters. I was like, hey, uh, I can't find this place. Which, by the way, after I found out where I needed to go aside, the building was not labeled at all. Every other building was labeled. This one was not because nobody bothered to. Not because it's something cool or special. Just literally, of sheer laziness, it was not labeled. So anyways, I went back. And they grab the orders out of my hands and they say, oh, thank goodness you're back. I was like, huh? No, I don't know if I've ever heard that in the military. But anyways, they took my orders, ripped them up, and cut me a new set. And I went to a different unit within the same one that was deploying in a couple months. So uh, that was my story. Because <laughs> I got lost, Yeah, I got to deploy. Wow. Because I know, I know for a fact if I would have showed up where I was supposed to. They would have just snatched you up. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, um, you know, maybe a blessing, maybe a curse, um, probably a little bit of both. So, but your first deployment was to uh, the general theater, I suppose. Uh, the deployment I've, I've had wasn't my first one, but um, one of my deployments was to Iraq. So we went there and then, so we did that. That lasted, uh, we were there longer than we thought we'd be. Uh, but things were wrapping up, thankfully, because um, that—I mean—you can do the math in your head. I mean, by the time I got done all that stuff, it was not 2005 anymore. Sure, sure. So did that. It was—it was a good one. Um, it was good for cutting your teeth, but it was not uh, movie-esque with uh, people uh, doing all kinds of cool stuff like Navy SEALs. Right. Right. Well, you weren't a Navy SEAL, so who could expect you to act like one? I mean, and you love the Navy SEALs. I know you've expressed this to me many times. So I don't have anything personally against the Navy SEALs, but they do a lot of funny stuff that other people laugh at. Sure. Are you telling me it's not just like the movies? I think it is just like the movies, and that's why it's funny. No, oh, fair enough. Uh, yeah, so I'll let everybody interpret that as they will. Um, so you go, you're a new guy, you're getting through your new guy stuff. Oh, so if you want to go back to that too. So the funny part sure. is, so uh, I guess the rest of the short part of the story is, so they hand me a new one. I know where I'm going. I've just driven around for 20 minutes. I know where right. everything is at this point. <laughs> so I go right in, park my car, walk in, and out walks the two instructors that I was, that probably uh, terrorized all of us for a good couple of months. Came walking out of the building, and I almost... Uh, I won't say I passed out or anything like that, but uh, my heart definitely skipped a couple beats, and I was yep. like, "Oh, here we go." Something was clenched. Yeah, yeah. It was so. Luckily, I was going to a different company than they were in. But yeah, that was like walking in, and it was just like, "Oh man, this is this is." Everybody knows everybody around here. Yeah, yeah. So everybody thinks you know, like SF is is like the cool guy station, um, and they show up and show up with long hair and you get to wear whatever you want and you know roll your sleeves and do you know cool guy stuff but you kind of had a bit of a different experience right 
yeah, I mean, there's a, there's definitely, um, it, it depends on when you show up. I'll tell you this, the worst time to show up is after, um, guys get back from a deployment. So they are crusty and angry and you're just excited and motivated. And there's just nothing worse than when somebody shows up excited and motivated after you're like, yeah. you don't want to explain right. anything. You just want to be like, look, I've lived with these guys. 10 months next to each other, 10, 12 months or 18 months, whatever. The last thing I want to do is go have a barbecue with them and their family. Like I'm probably going to disappear for a couple of weeks. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Just mm -hmm. like, yeah, well you got to get your space. Yeah. Go explore America a little bit. And, uh, or guys that had families and stuff like my family and I, we're just gonna, just gonna, we're just gonna do us. So unless the building's on fire, do, do not, not call. Fucking call me. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, and that's just how it is. And I think that's good and healthy. I think yeah. um, I was was at a place where one of the units that was uh, a conventional unit, as they call them, uh, but an elite conventional unit. At least they thought they were. Colin would disagree. But uh, I would not disagree. I'm just, um, you know, getting to getting to hear from you know you and and a couple of the uh, guys that I've you know gotten to know while I'm I've been out. Actually, I've, I've it's funny, I know more SF guys now that I've gotten out than um, when I was in. And, um, you know, just I think that all of us guys on the conventional side put it way up high on a pedestal. Um, and even though even though we get told very often by other experienced people in the military, they're like, it's probably not exactly what you're thinking. Um, and, you know, obviously, like, it's, it's very, very much... Uh, there's a lot more training and investment involved in that community and it produces a different product completely. Um, but it just is probably not as, as glamorous as, as I think everybody wants to think it is, uh, especially, you know, privates in the, in the conventional army. So, uh, I'll, I'll finish this story and then just remind me of another goofy story. That's very related to that. And I didn't even something, uh, I said that I didn't even realize had that much impact and someone else was like, oh, wow. And I don't mean it was all that amazing, but it was just not something I ever thought about. But anyways, um, what made me think of this is, so like that to me, that's what guys need. Like you need your right and left limit as far as doing that. You can't just, you know, go paint the town red or anything because you will go to jail. But uh, so you definitely need limits and stuff like that. But guys definitely need to have some space, I think, when they get back especially if it was a rough one, they need time to process stuff. So there was this unit and they were having issues with uh, suicide at the time. And it was not my unit at all. Um, not that that's not an issue. It's just, that's not why I bring this up. But anyway, so they decided to uh, lock these guys down for two months and they couldn't see their family or anything. Are you telling me that didn't solve their suicide issue? Um, well, uh, I don't think it did. But two, I can only imagine how much anger or anxiety or whatever that would build after your attempt. Yeah, yeah, I can I can only imagine too. That's so guys. So guys uh, that were not uh, dirtbag like me, as I'll say, that um, went through the conventional before they volunteered, they would always talk about um, how weird it was because we would get off the plane and just scatter. Yeah, like we'd be we'd get off the plane, you do an inventory, and then just like I've had several um, people in charge of me say, uh, do not, I do not want to see you. I don't want anybody 
here seeing you for at least a week. Like go take care, go take care of what you need to do or whatever. And that's not, um, like that's a good thing, especially guys with family. Right. That's yeah. That's not how uh, conventional units do it pretty much at all. You get off and then you get in a formation and then you march back to, um, you know, whatever area you're going to go into and you come in and there's all your family with shitting and grins on. And then they're like, oh, we're so happy that you're home. And you're like, I've been up for, you know, however long and I'm tired and I've been traveling from, you know, literally across the world since Tuesday. And then um, you, uh, you know, you have to go there and then it's like, oh, we're short one set of nods or something like that. Then you end up staying for six extra hours and then after that like maybe eventually you get to go home and then it's like all right guys zero nine work call tomorrow we're giving you the morning off yeah look you guys <laughs> you don't have to be in at six yeah we're push it back to nine yeah yeah so there, there's an immense amount of um control and micromanaging in the regular army um which i think is is one of the more impressive things about your community is just uh, how self-driven a lot of people are um, and not having to be babysitted all the time or not having a command structure where they feel that they need to babysit you all the time. I mean, it, it that comes and goes, but for the most part, I definitely would agree with you. But what that made me think of is, um, so being me, uh, not the most friendly character, um, or uh, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Anyways, guys would get off the plane and stuff, and they'd be... We'd be like getting ready to land, and they call their wives and stuff like that, and all that. Like, hey, everybody meet them at the airport, and I would always tell my wife, I was like, absolutely not. You will not meet me at the airport. And I didn't mean this in a mean way, because do you know what we have to do? We have to go do an inventory. Sometimes those can go long. I will call you once we're getting our final thing on the inventory, and then I'll meet, because then we can just meet and get out of here, and you're not sitting around for who knows how long, right? Texting me saying, oh, with your pack of children, yeah, like. <laughs> Are you done yet? Are you done yet? And she would used to get very irritated at me. And I think towards the end, she's kind of like, I understand why he did that. I was like, yeah, because I can, I'd be like, yes, we are, everything's good, but somebody down the hall is missing something. So we got to wait till they find it. Yeah. And guys just be going crazy. They're like, she's out in the parking lot. It's like, yes, but you're not going anywhere. Yeah. And it's yeah. just like. So that, that doesn't change then from from conventional to well there are something. rules yeah i mean that's well, true that's I mean, true probably anywhere i know it's just uh, all the stories that you hear as a as a regular guy is always uh the rules are meant to be broken and they are often um, so. well the last thing you want is to be called back right so. yeah yeah because then you're you know shithoused and um you know spending time with your family and that might be your experience but no, uh, the last thing you wanted to be called back is like guys would have stuff planned and you don't want to be called back three hours later and you're like, sure. hey, I'm halfway to Canada. I can't really. It's going to be a minute. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, but I would say at the level, because I'm sure you guys had to wait till the brigade was good, right? Uh, oh, man, it was it was just this tight grip around control from the very top. And uh, that was one of the things that I hated, you know, so for people that don't know, in the NCO creed, it's um, I will take initiative in the absence of orders. And I always like used to think about that. And I was like, when do I ever 
you know, have the opportunity to take the, in, or the initiative in absence of orders because it's usually like, hey, I want to take my guys to go do training. And they're like, no, sit in the cough. We got to see if we got to go do something. You know but what I mean? That's the orders, though. That's what yeah, you don't like. Right. The order sure, was sure. nobody leaves until sure, the, sure. the brigade's up. And you're yeah. like, uh, we were up before we got here. You know, that's part of the reason why I got out is because towards the end, um, things started to seem so stupid to me. And um, that's not a great uh perspective to have as an nco because your guys can see that and i didn't want to uh impart that on anyone who was younger and more motivated um not that i was old but i was considered old for you know even the military just at 23 um i remember when i was 18 i went to my first unit and my my nco was 23 and i said holy shit you're ancient um and he was like wait until you're 23 bro and then you know i did and i was like oh wow okay so now i'm the guy that's you know wiping the 18 year old's butt um but you know to to that extent like it's it's interesting seeing the parallels between our our two different experiences but then also kind of where that diverges and um where do you think that you, diverges for you do so you want me to go back to the funny story or yeah, hey, whatever you want to do, okay. this is this so, is your shit. So uh, I'll run it to the ground. But uh, <laughs> so I was I was an instructor for a period of time, and we had these guys come through, and you get every, all walks of life, right? And there was a guy who um, was highly intelligent and had accomplished things and like very impressive stuff. And anyways, we were, we were all as instructors sitting around. Uh, fire just kind of um as they say shooting the breeze uh or colin would say shooting the shit but uh we were, we were so they were there just talking or whatever and talking about this guy and he was good so there's he was doing great and it was the chaplain comes up all happy as chaplains tend to be as i've been my experience i don't know why they're so happy all the time <laughs> and he comes up and he's like hey you know this guy and his background's like yeah 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 he's like wow he's got a real impressive he's here with you guys and all this stuff and we had been up probably all night i probably just got my morning coffee because we were probably about to go on a good 20 mile walk and i was like yeah i know but he'll find himself somewhere and he's gonna look to his left and right and he'll be stirring shit just like the rest of us and apparently because that's what you do overseas you got to burn your own shit right and the bottom guy and top guy well not conventional but where we're at even 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 the guys in charge of stuff it's like everybody takes their turn because I'm not going to burn somebody else's shit. And well, I mean, you do, but you, that's right. why you take turns. Right. And he just thought it was so funny. He's like, oh my gosh, I never even thought of stuff like that. And it's just like, I don't even realize why you think that's funny. It's just the truth. But it, yeah, so that's that's something that um, probably did stick with him. And, you know, that's that's interesting. It's a, it's a little different um, on the conventional side. And it actually just really depends on the quality of the people that are around you. And something that I'm sure you can attest to is that changes per unit, per the time that you're in that unit. Um, and, you know, one unit can be one way one day and then totally different two years from then. Um, and I noted that, like, at my first unit when I first got there, it was an absolutely killer unit. And then by the end, it had softened up a little bit, at least in the company that I was in. Um, and then going to... Uh, the 82nd, I've seen that unit evolve over a couple of years too. And it just really, really depends on who's there and when they're there. Um, 
I know that when I went downrange with the troop that I was in, um, it was so solid that I could have bet anyone from the top down, at least within the troop level, um, would have would have been stirring shit. But uh, you know, six months before and six months after, who knows? So, yeah, I guess I mean you'll just get called out on it. I don't know how else to say that sure. that you'll. Well, rank is a little different for you guys too. So. I mean, it still exists. Sure, it's just um, I think it's a little bit more regimented. On, well, and you you had a different situation than a lot of the other guys that I talked to from you know your community. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is though um, when you're just when you're living so close to a group of people mm-hmm. or a group of guys, um, uh, not participating in daily life events such as stirring and dumping diesel into a 55 gallon drums cut in half in order to keep the hygiene up in the area Mm -hmm. Uh, you're going to build one a lot of resentment and two um it's just it's just not it's just bad business i guess the best way to put it just like sure um but you'll have guys like um some guys will cook for everybody all the time, mm-hmm. but then somebody else will pick up and be like, hey, man, you don't have to clean the dishes because I got that. Because it's not – you're not going to find – it's very communal. It's kind of weird because sure. – uh, but that's that's just how you, you get through things because nobody has enough time to do everything they need to do themselves. As odd as that sounds. And yeah. now, now I made it sound like a hippie commune, which I think a lot of people would be irritated with. Well, you know, in certain ways, the military is very socialist. So or communist, yeah, or communist even. What's yours is mine, comrade. Mm-hmm. Um, Each their own ability. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, and I kind of noticed that in small stuff, like, um, like if I would have to bring, you know, my my aid bag on top of my ruck. If we had a particularly heavy ruck, I'd have guys that would either take some of my medical supplies for me, so I could spread that out. Or they'd, you know, take some of the the load off me and carry my water or something like that. So, but you got to think like you all got to get there. You all got to get there together. Yeah. So. Yeah. And you don't want to leave the medic or the uh, or the uh, fister or anybody like that behind. So. Oh, fister. That's a that's a jab. Oh yeah, that's well, a jab. It is a little bit of a jab. So all right. So, do you have a what? What else do you have to say about your military career? It was long and indistinguished. I doubt that. I think we all doubt that. And your um, your uh, humbleness is not something that I think is even foreign to people who have listened to uh, veterans of your background in the past. Because I, I think it's a, it's a very common trait um, for a lot of people um, from that background. And it, it might be something that's uh, internally and externally expected to a certain extent. Um, It's not expected. It's not expected is not how i would describe it i guess i'd put it this way and this is something that i've thought about is uh, when i was a young teenager i liked to lift weights believe it or not and it's because as any young male in the 90s everybody wanted to get i shouldn't say everybody but uh it's a different time as people wanted to get huge put on muscle mass i was on the football team as a meathead i'll freely admit that but there comes a point in time in your life when you realize except for a very you select group of people there's always somebody in the gym who can lift more than you right right there's always there's always a batter dude in the room um 
So you learn to keep your mouth shut about stuff because sometimes that guy will decide to speak up and say, and one, especially people who don't know what they're talking about, they'll call out. But two is uh, it's not like a one-up competition. It's right. more like sit down, be humble, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, no, um, that's that's a terrifying prospect if you're if you're going around and you're end up being the braggart for the most part. Um, I'm gonna hit you with a hard one. All right, send it. What do you think about PTSD and moral injury? Uh, you'd have to define moral injury. So moral injury would be something where you're not experiencing like the the very real medical symptoms of PTSD. Um, however, you did something that that violates uh, kind of your your own personal you know uh, beliefs about society around you. And then also maybe society's beliefs that have been given to you. And obviously some people have uh, differences in this. And, and it depends on the level of training that you go through and yada, yada, yada. But moral injury comes with, um, f for example, like this. Um, in the class that we're doing this for, uh, we go over an instance where um, these guys are at a checkpoint in Iraq. And um, one guy's up in the 50 on a Humvee. And there's um, and there's a a guy just holding his rifle, and uh, there's an officer, and they have a van that's coming towards them, and it doesn't stop, and they keep flagging for it to stop, and the ROE at the time, which for everyone that's listening is rules of engagement, uh, is basically if they get within a certain distance because of what's known as vehicle-borne IEDs or improvised explosive devices. Uh, where they basically pack a car full of HME, which is homemade explosive, and ram it into shit and try to blow people up. Um, well, so the ROE at the time was like, if they get within, let's say, 100 meters, uh, you light it up. You just try to stop that vehicle with any means necessary. Um, because there are signs, and you have, uh, you know, you're waving them off, and there's barricades and all this other stuff. Um, you know, what that doesn't take into account is that a certain you know, fraction of the people in these countries are completely illiterate uh, <laughs> and may not be, you know, really, you know, knowing what's going on in the situation. Well, anyways, in this uh, particular instance, this van uh, basically goes around the barriers and doesn't stop and gets within this. Um, so this officer has to make this call, you know, and he goes, light it up um, or fucking shoot him or something like that, right? Um, let's say it's fucking shoot him. All right. Let's say those are the words that he said, cause I don't remember exactly, but, uh, those, that guy on the 50 and that, and that guy with his rifle, um, they stopped the car and they killed everybody inside. Um, and when they went over to inspect it, it was like, uh, one person was left alive, like a little girl or something like that. And, uh, they, they had killed the rest of this like family, like on their way to like a hospital or something. Okay. Um, and when they got back from that deployment, um, that officer, uh, was okay at first, but then like those two guys killed themselves eventually. And, um, the officers, you know, gives this account of it and he goes, you know, like those words always stick in my head, fucking shoot them or light them up or whatever it was. Right. Um, so that would be an account of moral injury where he doesn't feel the PTSD, you know, he's not hiding under a table from fireworks. He's, he's not having the anxiety. He's not having all that kinds of stuff. Um, but he has this injury to essentially what his, his morals are, which would was killing civilians. 
um, even though it was well within his ROE to do so, and it wasn't intentionally killing civilians uh, rather than protecting themselves. So that would be an example of moral injury. So what do you think about moral injury, and what do you think about PTSD? I mean, what do I think? So, uh, so for the moral injury part, I understand... I understand the concept of it, I guess. Um, and you can't control how people feel about situations. So I, I'm not going to say that this guy is not experiencing that. But what do I think about moral injury? Um, you'd have to look at, the way I would look at it is, did he do something immoral or amoral? Are you asking me? Or the general world. But so, that's how I would look at it. And sure. two is if you do the reverse is say that they didn't stop and it was an explosive and he's the only one who survived, would he also experience moral injury? Yeah. Yeah. I think there are certain parallels um, between like the military and police for this. And it's not something I want to get into because I don't want to turn this into like a political podcast. But um, did they do something immoral? Uh, well, you know, they took the lives of innocent people um, through an honest mistake on both parties. Um, and, you know, was it amoral? Not defined by the, a or the ROE. It wasn't as exactly what they were supposed to do. It's what they were trained to do. And God forbid that it was an actual terrorist and they didn't shoot him. What would have happened to them? They would have got blown up. Period. The end. Um, so, in a sense, was it the right thing or wrong thing to do? I think that you can just say yes. You know, yes to both. Was it the right or wrong thing to do? So, so I'll just say that um, you aren't always given the benefit of being able to make a decision in, which I'm not trying to turn into a political thing, but your question is, is there such a thing where people feel moral uh what do you call it moral pain moral injury moral injury yeah do i think that the officer that we're describing feels that yes i absolutely do do i think that um, he should feel that i would say no and the reason i would say that is you have to build out your morality i guess because morality is a a construct right a social construct i'm sure some people would say depending on a whole bunch of variety of factors other people would say um depending on if you're religious or not it's not well these are these are the big philosophical questions right this is the lord of flies you know if you put people on an island will they devolve and kill each other or is is morals innate you so, know are morals innate sorry that was bad grammar so that was the experiment was accidentally actually run apparently and they did not all kill themselves or kill each other because apparently I saw this on the news the other day. Uh, mm -hmm. It was in like Micronesia, Micronesia or the area. I don't know. Sure. But, but anyways, these guys, group of, group of teenagers mm -hmm. were on a boat that got shipwrecked and they were stranded for two years and they created their own system where nobody was murdered or killed. And you could say that their previous exposure to their, you know, the society That's where I would have went with it, yeah. But. Is the reason it didn't happen. But basically, they would um, kind of like excommunicate people for a brief period of time if they sure. broke the rules, but there wasn't, a, it didn't devolve into uh, craziness. Right, right. You're not dropping a stone on Peggy's head. Right, yeah. So 
I guess, but when you're talking, the tricky part is, is here's what I'll say about that is I think where people experience, and this is just my unexpert opinion on anything, is where people, because I know, I know the situation. I've talked to a lot of people who definitely um, have experienced that. But I think a lot of people who experience that is they don't go into combat or whatever with well-defined um, morals. Sure. sure. And I don't mean that in like a bad way, like they're bad people. They're well, they're, they're living morals. in sort of um, a liminal state, right? Because before you go to war, you're essentially a civilian. And after you go to war, you're a veteran of a war. Um you know, in a liminal state would be something that's in between, okay? And, you know, I, I think that there this, you know, parallels or goes hand in hand with this other concept. It's called combat gnosis or combat, or combat gnosticism, which is kind of this idea like where, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, if you ask like the, the archetypal crusty vetters, like what was war like? And he's like, you can't, you can't understand. You know, so it's it's this whole thing where it's it combat gnosis is essentially um, where you have to have experienced it in order to understand it or know it, and it can't be communicated fully through um, through communication like this or or through any other means that are available to humans other than just actually experiencing yourself. So you can read all the books and you can watch all the movies and you can talk to people all day long, but you'll never understand war unless it happens to you and, and you participate in it. Um, so it goes hand in hand with that in the sense that um, even people who are technically considered, you know, veterans or service members uh, are still in a sense civilians until they experience war. And I think that, you know, kind of along the lines of what you're saying is, is like, they can't really have these really defined morals um, if, one, they haven't had intensive training like what, you know, your community goes through um, and is not the mark of the conventional side, okay? And two, um, without having had really experienced it and having a framework for it and then having to, to make those decisions because I think that the boundaries of morality aren't even clear until you've been to them right um to an extent and i i have to take a guess at this myself i mean uh i'm just sitting here trying to process everything so i'm not trying to um slow things down i know i'm actually doing that you so take your time i guess you there are certain people who here's how i would say it and this is i'm not trying to sound um judgmental even though i'm being extremely judgmental and i realize that and i'm acknowledging that is certain people aren't cut out for war. War is not for everybody. Um, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a good thing. You right. Know, you don't right. Want, Otherwise, you don't we would have a very uh, fragile fabric of society. Yeah, if we had one. Yeah. So anyways, there are, I would say that there's a small group of people who um, can separate themselves from... Um, it, I guess I get. I'll just I'll just speak from personal experience because that's probably the easiest way to do it. Look, no matter who you are, when you're in combat, you're not. Things aren't going to be well defined. Nothing's well defined. You don't know everything. It's very uh, nebulous or whatever you want to call it. And I would say that in reality, that's probably life in general. But I think people um, 
when you're in combat, you can either try to gain, gain control of everything, which I would say is difficult, one, and two, maybe impossible, or two, you can accept kind of the chaos and just try to either, for sometimes it's just survive the chaos, and other times it's try and accomplish something through the chaos, which is not a justification for anything. It's just you can't, you have to accept that you can't control everything in the moment. And like I said, that's my opinion. And so um, when you have people who I would say are the ones that want to have the control and stuff, when they get thrown into the chaos and can't and don't like the fact that they lose control, you're going to get a lot of second guessing and stuff like, well, what if I would have done this? What if I would have done that? At some point you have to understand like uh, for the, for example, I mean, that's a story I've heard a lot too. So I'm not saying it's made up at all, but that's kind of like one of the classic examples. And it's like, it's not your fault that the guy can't read. It's not your fault that he, he might've been trying to save his daughter, get in the hospital or whatever. It's, I mean, that's not your fault. I mean, that's like a life happen. Like you're, so the way I would, the way I looked at it is like, so the U S put me there and I'm here for a reason. And my purpose is this, they're the ones who have defined things for me. And so I can either accept their definition or I can change their definition in my own mind but then once you change it in your own mind then you're like responsible is the wrong word but then a lot of the then you own a lot of what you do versus which is not because I, I know you can go to uh going to vietnam's like well they told me to burn the villages and i'm not saying that at all because there is a certain point where you do have to stop and say hey this is not yeah the roe is is not the the end-all be-all for morality right but, but when you do find yourself in situations like that is that is why the ROE is there. Like you have to like as horrible as you feel for doing that, is you have to accept that stuff that was outside of your control. You didn't have that guy drive yeah. at you with a van full of kids. And I'm not blaming the guy for doing it because maybe he was just trying to and maybe the guy's done it like ten times before at different spots where they recognized the van yeah. and they knew what was going on. Right. But the guy didn't. So I completely understand why people feel that way. And I would almost say it's the reason people feel that way is one, because um, sometimes that's just how it's going to be. Like, mm -hmm. You can't control things. Um, but two, also, I would say uh, it's probably a failure of training of the government to really say, hey, you're going to be put in a lot of situations where things aren't going to go well. And you just have to accept or you have to learn that it's that if things are out of your control, you control what you can control and things that are out of your control. You can't uh, dwell on it, and some people just will. I mean, yeah, um, you know that uh, that sentiment um, actually parallels something that I learned really early on in the army. Um, that actually also parallels the situation that I gave to you. Um, I had a drill sergeant that had the same thing happen when he was a PFC and he was in Iraq, and he basically gunned down an entire school bus of women and children. And, um, you know, all of us, you know, fresh faced people were, were pretty appalled. Um, not like, not like calling him a monster or anything like that. Not even feeling that way. Just like, like, holy crap, you had to kill a whole bus full of women and children. Like we're kind of like, now we're like, dude, is this dude like effed up over it or, and, and he kind of said the same thing. He was like, look, you have to have this kind of double mindedness 
you know, you have to have this double-mindedness and in, in, in two different rules. You have rules for polite society and then you have rules for war. And um, I think he framed a lot of his, his morals um, in two different sets. And in that, maybe that protected him from that um, that moral confusion or injury. Yeah, and like I said, I'm not saying at all that the guy, the officer in this situation sure. is not suffering because of a decision he made. It's, I don't know, it's just, it's just one of those things where... Well, I think, um, you know, the other big part of this that maybe I didn't convey that well um, is that he was fine with that decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, until those two dudes killed themselves, and then he felt responsible for that as well. But again, that's um, sure, sure. I mean, he was doing his job, and I, th- I think that even even civilians that watch that, uh, generally in both classes now that I've done, um, have have understood that from pretty much the onset, or at least the majority of them have understood. They're like, well, hey, that was it's what he had to do, um, and they're not questioning whether it was moral or not for him to do it, but the fact that maybe there is this because he grew up in polite society that there is this moral that he couldn't carve out that still became injured and then leaves him with something like that down the road well i mean if i was to uh, pretend to get in the mind of this guy i would say he doesn't feel guilty necessarily or the moral injury from giving the order he probably feels guilty the fact that he in his mind caused harm to two of his guys yeah yeah, I mean, he killed a family and caused harm to two of his guys, so not guilty for giving the order because he did the right thing for the order, but maybe guilty for the outcome. Um, yeah. So I can I can totally agree with that. So now we've talked about PTSD and moral injury, which is two of the, the big things that we uh, that we um, go through in class. Go ahead. We did not talk about PTSD. Oh, we didn't talk about PTSD. Actually, you're right. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, so... What's different for PTSD for you, and what stands out? So, well, I am not at all anywhere an expert on PTSD. I would say that PTSD, um, in my opinion, um, anybody who experiences a traumatic or stressful event is probably going to have to work it out in their mind. Um, Some people, it takes longer than others. Uh, I forget sure there's certain benchmarks for when ptsd is considered diagnosable or whatever um but there's also just a normal response to high stress um which i want to say again i'm not sure about this is i think there's a difference between like normal normal ptsd if you will yeah usually resolves itself i think in under a year and then after that, it's something else. Kind of something that you would expect to happen after a traumatic event versus something that becomes what PTSD is, which is, you know, considered disordered. Oh, yeah. So, the, so yeah, I got post-traumatic stress. And then, yeah, that's where you had the disorder part. Yeah. I mean, do I know people who experience it? Absolutely. Is there uh, ways to work through it? I don't know. I think some people do, definitely. I think some people do experience stuff that is life-changing that they're not going to get over. Okay. So you think that there are ways that some people can get better, especially if you end up like putting in the work and doing the right things. But then you also think that there are stuff that um, is just going to stick with you. Yeah. And I would look to the uh, World War II generation for a lot of that stuff. Um, as far as maybe a horrible example, since none of them ever brought up any of their ales. <laughs> That's why it's a great example. That's oh, why sure, I actually sure. brought it up. 
Sure. But anyways, um, this is what I was told. So uh, I will let you all know. And it's not something that I personally, firsthand knowledge. But uh, like my grandfather, he was in WWE too. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a, an elk, I think, or whatever. But anyways, you had, that's where you had like the VFW sure. and the American Legion. I mean, that was World War One, I, I think, actually, when they set up. Then you had like the Elks. What's the other one? The Moose Club mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And so you had, I guess you'd call it in today's parlance, a safe space where guys could sit and talk about stuff. And they would. And they would. Yeah. And it became a thing. Sure. And you still had a lot of people who uh, committed suicide. You had a lot of people who were alcoholics. And you had all the, I'm not saying that that. But you definitely had a community structure as well where guys would work stuff out. And then this is something my father would say is when Vietnam ended, they were shunned. And I think that that is well known. Like he, he like they were absolutely shunned. They were told to leave. And the Korean War veterans, the Forgotten War, which is even worse. Those poor guys like were, were dealing with the same stuff. But, that you know, they had missed the war even though they fought the Korean War. Right, right. I don't think that anybody who knows anything about the Korean War would say that they uh, they missed out on, on fighting. Um, my uh, my great uncle was actually a, a bar gunner in uh, in the Korean War, and apparently there was there was there's quite a bit that came back with that. Um, but yeah, I totally agree with you, especially about Vietnam. And Hillary's gonna love this. Um, but we talked to a guy named Carl Marlantes, and Carl Marlantes is an author. But he was also a lieutenant, a marine lieutenant in Vietnam, um, and he went through some thick stuff, and he got some uh, distinguished medals and um, yada yada. Um, you can I can show you his citation afterward. It's kind of cool, but he's somebody who's actually come. You know, we we read his stuff in class, but he's actually come to our class and talked to us. Um, he actually just came like a week or two ago. I think maybe two or three weeks ago now, but um, he came and talked to us. And, you know, one of the things that, one of the stories that he tells sometimes is that um, him and his wife, uh, his wife was was close friends with this woman and her husband was a guy and they both, um, and him and Marlante is both like coached on the same sports team for like six years. And then one day uh, they were over at their house and both the wives like we're talking and like mind you these are you know fairly close friends um both the wives were talking and they found out that both of their husbands were vietnam vets you know obviously the wives knew that separately but they it had, it had never come up in discussion and then marlantes found out from his wife that the other guy was a vietnam veteran and you know the the moral of the story there is that they they either felt that it was so unacceptable for them to talk about their service um, and that it was such a hostile environment for veterans back then of the Vietnam War that they that he didn't even discuss it with his, you know, one of his closest friends of like six years. And they just both happened to be veterans of the Vietnam War that, you know, did stuff. And, um, you know, that's, that's an incredibly powerful story to me because, I mean, you know me, especially, you know, walking around um, in the veterans organization and stuff, people ask me, and they're like, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, well, I don't do anything now, but I used to do stuff um, it just as, as kind of a, an entryway in a conversation. And, um, you know, obviously this is something kind of passionate about bridging the military-civilian divide a little bit and um, 
seeing as I find myself in, in a bit of a liminal state when it comes to that, um, I think it's a little bit easier for me. Um, and you know, some people uh, like yourself don't, you know, don't go around telling people and your dad, don't go around telling people, um, you know, and I think he said only a handful of people that you've been in multiple classes with even know that you were a veteran. Um, I don't think any. No, well, uh, I think everyone in all my classes knows because I, you know, I make it, I don't make it like known, but when people ask me, you know, why are you older? I'm, I'm, I'm quick to be like, oh, I was in the army. And then part of that is because I like that they can then feel that they can ask me questions. And I often get a lot of questions. And I think that that's important too, because if you've got these experiences in this, <laughs> this huge facet of human existence, which is, which is war and wardom and all the things that, that surround it. Um, I think it's, it's good to have somebody that is willing to communicate that to people that never did experience it or never will, or are just curious. And, and, uh, you know, I've had that multiple times since I've been in Carolina where somebody just wanted to talk about it. Um, or, you know, kind of ask about it, and I'll be up front. I'm like, well, yeah, man, I was, you know, I wasn't out gunslinging or anything like that, but I can tell you generally about how the military is, or if somebody told you something, if it sounds like bullshit, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, as you were talking about this, I'll just uh, throw out a couple of thoughts there. I sure. Um, I can, I guess, more relate to the uh, Vietnam uh, veteran era, because I guess the biggest thing is you don't want to get labeled because that label, which I'm sure um, a lot of people can relate to getting labeled. So I'm not going to um, pretend that that's unique to veterans at all or anything. Right. But you don't want to get labeled because with that label comes a lot of stuff. And sometimes you don't want to talk about stuff. And, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes stuff's in the past and you don't want every time you bring up that is it's almost like you can know that certain questions are coming right. after a while you get or at least i personally get tired of talking about some stuff because there's there's stuff you can talk about there's stuff you can't to civilians just like anybody else and um there is i i would call it there is a lot of well i don't feel that it's baggage but i think for a lot of people there are a lot of veterans there's a lot of baggage that comes with it where some people are uh very proud of what they did and i'm definitely not saying that they shouldn't be because i think it is something that you should be proud of mm -hmm. but i think um a lot of guys that i know don't want to talk about it and it has more to do with i know i can't explain to you what it's like but you're going to keep asking right and i have i won't say like it's too, it's too cruel to say i have better things to do but it's kind of like one of those things of you're, you're not going to get a cat that can bury a turd on a marble floor. You know what I mean? Right. Well, it's going to take too much time, too much effort. So what that'll bring me into is a, is a pretty big topic as well. What do you think about, well, I mean, cause that's the, that's the thank you for your service argument. You know, there's a lot of people that go, Oh, I hate that bullshit that thank you for your service stuff. And, and it's, it's a cop out and, and all this stuff. And, and there's certain parts of that that are true, but at the same time, like, if you didn't give civilians a simple way out, you know, then you've got to have these like intense conversations that they might not even have the language to have. And you know what I'm saying? So it's like, 
there's a lot of veterans that say that kind of stuff to me all the time. They're like, yeah, you know, I hate that. It's like, they don't know. They don't even want to know and stuff and they don't care. And it's like, well, dude, you know, like, would you really want to be every time that you go, okay, yeah, I was in the army or if they go, you know, you know, like, uh, do you, do you want them to be like, okay, well, you know, like, tell me about your service. What does it mean to you? Did you glean anything from it? Have you ever killed anybody? Does that morally injure you? And like, no, you don't want that. It's just like when you're walking by someone, you say, you know, like, Hey, how's it going? You don't want them to be like, Oh, terrible. Actually, uh, my girlfriend broke up with me this morning. You're like, Oh shit, I was going to go get coffee and, and not want to shoot myself in the face. Um, or maybe that person needed you. that's true but um we can't all be counselors um in everyday conversations with strangers so so i'll just tell you how i respond to that and if you knew my wife she would laugh at this moment because she would say dave you always get a very confused look on your face when someone says that to you and i go yes because i don't know what to say to them because i'm not ashamed of it saying thank you for because they feel obligated to which is fine but i got paid to be there like i chose that like i don't yeah like well and i think it's also different for people of our generation of the all-volunteer military um and in a conflict it was you know entirely like up to you whether you were going to go or not yeah and it's to me it's just one of those again and this is my opinion because i am i know a lot of people who uh talk about a good way to ruin somebody's day say thank you for their service and it's like well i was you should take that as harm it's i don't take it (laughs) as any ill will you know what i mean right so i do know people who it does ruin their day when they hear that and that's not saying that civilians should stop saying that because it's not your problem for thanking somebody for their service It's, it's the person's reaction it's them but there's a lot of guys who are bitter and angry about stuff and just brings it up but i would say that's why a lot of guys don't have uh a veteran of foreign war license plate or sticker or whatever like yeah well i mean and there's and there's entire spectrums of a veteran right there's the guy that you never would ever know or he would never say it at least and then there's the guy that was like i did three days in basic training you know and i wear my pc to the mall and shit like that and um yeah and has all the stickers on their car and the disabled veteran license plate and do you have a sticker on your car, Colin? Yes. So I am. Uh, I'm on the. You know, if I would say that there's a halfway mark of that spectrum, I am just to the right of it, where I have a flag um, out front uh, and uh, two stickers on my car. The units that I was in. I didn't want to put my entire ERB on there, but I do like those stickers. And I'll tell you once, I actually think it got me out of a speeding ticket. I probably shouldn't admit that because that sounds like a shitbag thing to say. But I was like driving home from Carolina or from Chapel Hill once. Was and it near Fayetteville? No, it was in Chapel Hill, which, yeah, it's not going to help you in Fayetteville. Um, but uh, I was driving home from, I think, either school or work in Chapel Hill one time, and I was going like 15 over, and this, I seen this cop, and I was like, well, I'm screwed, because um, I just wasn't even paying attention to how fast I was going. You know, right there on 54, going out of town, it's it's like, it seems like it should be a lot faster. But There's like, a cop there today. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. Um but he pulled me over and, you know, like he walks up behind my truck and I've got the, the stickers on it and whatever. It's just, if for anybody that's wondering, it's just my two units. It was 173rd on one side and the 82nd Airborne on the other side. Um, not like a big like, thank me for my service, but it's definitely like, hey, I was there. Um, 
So whatever. Um, I debated putting them on. Trust me, I, I long, long and hard. Did you? But um, I did put them on, and I think the cop saw it, and then he was like, "Ah, oh, well, I'll just give you a warning this time." And I was like, "Oh, thank you, white privilege." Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, that's neither here nor there. Like I said, I don't want to get political or anything about it, but um, you know, getting back to it, you had told me that you listened to Tim O'Brien on NPR. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that goes along with the, the moral injury and the PTSD in the sense that he wrote a book called the things they carried. And a lot of the things that they carried were not physical things. If you kind of, you know, pick up what I'm putting down, there were like mental and, and spiritual and emotional things. Um, and you know, that's, that's one of the books that we read and I, I enjoyed it, but you said that you didn't really like his, his interview on NPR. Yeah, now you're going to have to make me think of it. Uh, it, it just, um, I guess his interview struck me as very disgenuine. I think it was, um, what is it, Fresh Air he was on or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and listened to it for a while. Um, which I, I, I don't, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to call him out, but it just struck me the way, it was almost a um, impersonal way he talked about it. It was almost clinical, and I just, Thought rehearsed, that, yeah, so, I, and I thought that was kind of odd, and just kind of the stuff he said, which I mean, I wasn't in Vietnam, so I can't sure speak to it. I will, I will say to a certain extent that's probably because I mean he's been speaking about it for twenty, thirty, forty years now. Um, where, yeah, it's it's gonna have the he's gonna have this package of words that come along with him to every interview. Um, that probably are going to sound familiar from other interviews and, and yada, yada, yada. So part of it is rehearsed just simply through repetition, I'm sure. Um, but to that, I haven't listened to it yet, so I can't really say. Um, I mean, if you I mean, if you played it right now and I listened to it, I could probably point out. I mean, that was a while ago, but I remember sure. you had talked about the book, and I was yeah. like, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, yeah. so I just, I just want to bring it up, see if, the, if there was anything that was sticking out in your head, but we can move along. Um all right, so you know we got through uh, some of the nitty gritty. Uh, we're at about let's see, we're at about an hour forty-five, uh, which is fine. I got about twenty or thirty more minutes that we can keep talking, uh, but we'll move into some of the other stuff now, um, and and then I'll ask you some really broad questions right at the end. Um, so, oh, go ahead. You got a thing? Could have just said that in the microphone. All right, so we're back. I uh, just had to take a little bit of a, a potty break for those of us with smaller bladders. So um, now that we're back, uh, and we talked about the military stuff a lot, um, I kind of want to narrow it down to like being a you know student veteran. And I know that you're still in, and we're not going to really talk about that uh, to a certain extent just because we're just keeping things at a high level as far as that goes um, for anybody that's wondering. Um, but I'm going to ask, uh, why Carolina? Because they accepted me. <laughs> That's a very glamorous answer. No, I mean, uh, I can tell you a funny story about that. Not very funny, but... Uh, so, um, I was located in and around a certain military base in North Carolina. I had three kids at the time. And... Uh, they were going to school, and they were going to a good school, and I was had to apply to uh, 
<laughs> colleges that are quote unquote driving distance, which for me meant less than two hours. And so um, it limited my scope where I could apply to. So I applied to uh, UNC and I applied to NC State. I got accepted into UNC, which I didn't think that I would. And I got rejected by NC State. Um, so decision was made for me, uh, the best decision made for me in my life, because uh, the second I got accepted to UNC, my wife was hitting me for not immediately accepting. I was like, oh, we got to weigh, weigh the pros and the cons. She's like, you're an idiot. And I was like, yes, I know, but I got <laughs> to weigh the pros and cons. She's like, you know what you'll pick if you get into both. I was like, I absolutely do. I'll go to UNC, but it's an awesome school, and I've, I've thought that the whole time I've been here, so I'm a huge... I don't... Uh, people who know me uh, know that I don't advertise much but apparently uh some of my friends are like oh, i noticed you and t-shirt again i was like yeah it's, it's what i wear now it's no big deal yeah you went and picked up some gear the other day uh today i did actually for my horde of children sure uh but yeah so especially um yeah i mean i don't know i don't know how else to say it's a great school i mean hopefully they put this on something give me some money but i'm um, just kidding about that <laughs> But it's a great veteran school. endorsed. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean it's a great school. I mean, um, so yeah, and so UNC has been great to me. So I know it's not great to everybody, but to me it's been good too. And I would say I believe it's America's oldest public university, and so that has some significance. Plus, um, where I come from, it's probably one of the few national universities that people have heard of. Yeah, there you go. Um, I didn't really even know about Carolina that much when I was starting to apply to college. I was in Afghanistan at the time when I was kind of like, all right, this shit is kind of dumb. Um, and I was like, maybe I'll go try college instead. And uh, I started looking at different colleges and uh, my buddy was like, you should just go to Carolina, bro. And I was like, what's that? What's a UNC? And he was like, Are you, you know, effing kidding me, dude. And I was... Um, have you heard like, of Michael yeah. Jordan? Yeah, right. Right, and I was like, uh, you, "Actually, I have." That's a, that's a story for another time. Um, I met the dude one time, but um, and I just only at that time knew him from Space Jam because I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> I also remember Space Jam, but I also remember when the Bulls in the nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, right. Like I said, I was I was like I think I was like six or seven. Um, Space Jam came out in like ninety five, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I was one so you remember that's a pretty good memory no no i don't remember when space jam came out i remember watching space jam when i was i saw anyways i, I think getting, i went we're, to we're I, getting hung up on space jam right now i, I want to talk about carolina a friend's birthday party that was space jam fair enough um which is funny because i met him at a birthday party but that's all we're gonna talk about <laughs> all right um anyways um so that being said you know uh, and i felt the same way and i came here and and you know i thought it was a military-friendly school, um, just because that's kind of how it brands itself to a certain extent. Um, and, you know, to an extent, it is. And it's been good to me since I've been here, and I can't complain. I've seen where, you know, it's not exactly stepped up in other situations, but I think that can be said of any institution. Um, and I just, you know, uh, I tell people that I'm going to Carolina, and, you know, it perks their ears up sometimes if they're they're not around here and I didn't realize that it is kind of a big deal to a certain extent. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that at I mean, I back in my youth, uh when we were troublemakers, we would uh hit up the universities being 
the young single men that we were and no. probably just terrors and I apologize to anybody if I had to experience a bunch of idiots because that's what we were, we were just idiots. Um, but I mean, I'd been on got some funny stories about that that I think I've already told you. But mm-hmm. um, anyways, so I mean, I knew what it was. I didn't realize how what a big deal I guess it was. Sure. And my wife did, but she's from the south. But I didn't. I mean, it was just like to me. If even at the time after having lived in North Carolina for like ten years, I still was like. A, yeah, I know it's the state university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had one of those growing up too. <laughs> so I didn't realize it was um, as big of a deal as it is. So uh, in retrospect, I think the moral of the story is that I might sound intelligent, but I'm actually a knuckle dragger at heart. Well, I think it's a it's a lot. Um, it's a lot like Madison. You know, it's a lot like UW Madison. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean UW Madison for me though. I mean, <laughs> I mean. It was not the University of Minnesota, but it was a pretty good school. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Well, to us growing up, you know, I didn't know that was a big deal until people were like, no, UW-Madison's a pretty big deal, up where we're at at least. And So I still don't care about the University of Michigan, by the way. Fair enough. But I think that it probably does fall in that category as well. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. Um, do you, what do you think about civilian life and higher education so far? Uh, it's different doing it as... I think I can safely say this without offending anybody. An adult. I didn't become an adult probably till I turned 29, 30. So prior to that, I would consider myself a uh, whatever is between a child and an adult. Or which some would call teenager. A man boy, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely was. But, uh, um, but it, it's a different experience. Obviously, I, I did a, I dropped out of college, no big deal. But uh, so I remember, I, I, may, I pretend that I remember what it was like then. Mm-hmm. It's different now. But um, I would say the biggest difference is, um, and this is probably something that I don't think you can speak of. Maybe you can, so feel free to, is well, the first time I went to college, it was, I was young and still trying to figure out a lot of stuff. And whatever i mean when i say whatever that just means just yeah all that right all that and whatever and now going to school it's very uh um i have well-defined like limits is the wrong word because i'm not in an oppressive relationship but i mean uh I have to figure out when I do my homework and also make sure my kid's school lunch is good to go and you have uh like i mean which, again, Colin can definitely speak about some of this, but once you throw kids into the mix, it's... Totally different animal, I'm sure. It's it's just, there's less freedom, so... Yeah, yeah. well, last last year, my, my house was basically a frat house, um, even though I live out in the sticks, but it was a frat house for student veterans, um, and kind of has been for a while, but... Um, have you noticed how Northerners... At least our part of the woods calls it the sticks. I've not noticed that anywhere else. Yeah, you know, I guess I haven't paid that much attention to it, but yeah, I uh, I can see that. Um, Although you're kind of a southerner. I'm, yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And I, I did live down here a few times in my childhood. No, I meant Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, and I'm from southern Wisconsin, too. You know, so that makes it even even worse. But what I like to tell people is that 
um, in Beloit, we were defending the border against the Illinoisans, uh, the damn fibs, if you will. Not a job I'd want. No, no, absolutely not. But you can thank me for my service. We'll have a beer and move on. Um, that's the real service that I want to be thanked for, by the way. Well, thank you, because it's, like I said, not a job that anybody wants to or can do. <laughs> so, that being said, what do you uh, what do you think that your experiences have shaped how do you think your experiences have shaped your time here and then you know with that being said like do you carry any like big lessons around with you in your pocket about being a college student yeah well about life really and i'm and i'm talking this this can arch from anything from see this is the this is the big stuff that i wanted to get to at the end as far as these kind of like vague diffuse questions uh just because i kind of want to see what pops out um but like in, for an example what would you tell active duty dave or what would you tell teenage dave or what would you tell like a random civilian listening to this um maybe from the literature war class or or maybe someone considering the military or just you know whoever um do you carry around any like big things in your pocket that that really sit in your head or have been a theme for you? Okay, so now that there's one, I mean, that's a very potpourri Jeopardy question. Sure, absolutely. Um, I guess the thing that I would say is uh, my brother, who is not a veteran, um, and I'd say it's one of, he thinks it's one of his regrets. I think he's finally gotten over that, and I would say that he shouldn't regret that at all. Because I definitely don't think, uh, I don't think the service is for everybody, and I don't mean that in a condescending way. It's just, it's just like being a doctor is not for everybody, or mm-hmm. being a electrical engineer, or or being a, a garbage plumber, man, yeah, yeah or um, or you know, a welder or whatever. It's there are people who are good at, it, and there are people who aren't. People are cut out for it, and people aren't. And there's a whole lot of people that are okay at it mm-hmm. and there's not that there's anything wrong not that there's anything wrong with that i feel like that that is a seinfeld episode um dated myself um but uh anyways what i would ironic so we're sitting around and he might have been overindulging and he was on a uh or i don't know he was being um obstinate or obtuse or whatever mm-hmm. and he with a complete straight face and we were talking about for some reason finances there's a complete nothing fancy about it with a straight face he goes dave you've never taken a risk in your life you're not like me and i was like i don't know how to respond to that dan <laughs> he's like no seriously you don't do anything you won't take any risks play everything safe i was like all right dan it's like, I, I, but anyways, the reason I bring that up mm-hmm. is because I would say, I I would like to believe I've taken some risk in my life, maybe a healthy amount. Mm-hmm. Most people would say I'm an idiot, and I completely agree with that. Sure. You know what's the old airborne saying? Why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? Mm-hmm. Which for a period of time I've jumped out of more airplanes than I've landed in. Yeah, yeah, I have a story very similar to that. But anyways, this is what I say is uh. uh Take risks, or what does uh, Ms. Frizzle say? Oh, jeez, yeah, yeah. Take risks, make mistakes, and get messy, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. From all, there you go. I don't know if that's from the Magic School Bus. Yeah, I don't know if that dates me. I know it's on the Netflix now. 
like an updated version. I didn't realize Lily Tomlin was the voice of that. But anyways, I'm pretty sure she was in the original. But anyways, I'd say um, the life's not comfortable, so don't think that it should be. But at the same time, enjoy what you can and endure what you must. But uh, I don't actually mean that last part. But definitely enjoy what you can. And sometimes it's just going to suck. Do some hard living. Yeah. No, you don't want to be. No. No. I mean, if you can avoid it. Sometimes you're going to do it. Sometimes people choose it because they're stubborn, which is not a good trait. And that's not what I'm advocating. But I'd say take, take some chances. Take some risks. Every time I've done it, at least half the time it's worked. <laughs> well, on that note, we are hitting exactly two hours right now. So um, we'll get off of here, uh, drink another beer or so. I'm going to go throw myself around on the mat with some dudes, and you got some schoolwork to do. Um, but thank you for doing this with me today. Um, it was great talking to you, and I'm sure that we could both sit here for hours and hours and hours and continue this conversation. and and discover new things throughout that conversation. Um, but to give people this chance to hear someone of your, you know, like whether you want to admit it or not, your caliber and um, your level of experience or whatever, um, I think that's great. And I, I think that it's, 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 you know, whatever people can take from this, um, you know, just kind of finding out that a lot of these dudes are just normal guys, but also have extraordinary experiences or, or mindsets, um, and then lives after, you know, uh, one of the things that kind of hits me is that like, you know, uh, one, it's like, you never can just look at somebody and tell what they've done. And then two, um, maybe on the opposite end of this, it's not what you've done, it's what you've done lately. So you better get out there and, and go after it. So would you say that, uh, your uncle modeled the whole life after service for you though? No, absolutely not. No? No. Right. I was just thinking about when you said that. I was like, yeah, as a kid growing up, my I didn't realize my dad was crazy until I was probably deployed for X amount of times and was like starting to reevaluate my childhood and was like, yep. So I always knew uh, that my uncle was uh, pretty high up in the, in the military. Um, like he retired as a sergeant major, command sergeant major in, um, in the group that he was in. And... Um, no, I don't think he was a command sergeant major. I think he had to turn it down because they wanted him to go to the 82nd and be the command sergeant major there. Uh, and he said, can I keep my Green Beret? And they said, nope. And he said, well, I'm not going. And uh, Which is funny because he could have. Okay. Well, they uh, they at the time told him no, but that, that's just what he told me. But no, I, I mean, I grew up around the campfire listening to the dude. Um, I lived with them for a, a while. And uh, obviously we had deer camp every every year which is a, a very northern thing um but everybody basically the world stops for two weeks and we go hunting but um unless you're good then it's only a week yeah <laughs> no those dudes stay up there for the full two weeks it's them getting away for their wives um but, but that's that's all i'll say about that um but like i said thank you so much for coming today and and doing this project with me and i look forward to uh, figuring out and kind of, excuse my language, but dicking around with this, uh, this, um, podcast setup that I have here and, uh, getting it so that we can still have conversations when you're in the great white North. So, uh, it's called the Northland. Okay. Sure. Or, or is the you, land of lakes as liars say. 
Oh, you don't want to go down that road. But uh, <laughs> where is it? The people in Wisconsin say the North Woods. Sure, sure. So, all right, y'all. That's gonna be uh, that's gonna be me for the day. Signing off, and thanks for listening. Have a great one.